0: Hello and welcome to the Do One Better Podcast in Philanthropy, Sustainability, and Social Entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please subscribe to the show and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Before we kick things off, a big thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is a mission-first technology company seeking to increase empathy in the world, using the internet as a source of knowledge, inspiration, and communication. Quilt AI works on issues including climate change, gender equality, and health across the world. They're headquartered in Singapore with teams in New York, Zurich, London, Delhi, and they believe that the true value of the internet has yet to be seen. The internet has been used to index data, store photos, and conduct e-commerce, but it truly has not yet been used to understand the other. And this is the mission that Quilt AI is on that of converting the internet into a space of understanding and appreciation. So a big heartfelt thanks to our sponsors. Today we are talking with World Vision International's President and CEO, Andrew Morley. Now, World Vision International is a global organization. Many of you have heard of it. And today we're going to find out a little bit about the work they do, the reach they have, and we're going to find out a little bit about Andrew as well, his... uh, his personal narrative, professional trajectory, how he ended up where he is today. So without further ado, Andrew, it is an absolute pleasure having you on the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you, Alberto. It's wonderful to be here. Great. I guess we could start by finding out a little bit about World Vision International. What is the organization all about?
1: Well, you join us at a good time. This is our 70th birthday Congratulations. This year. Happy birthday. Yeah, thank you. And we are celebrating that 70 years where we've been working in some of the toughest places across the world. And we were formed 70 years ago in a collaboration between the U.S. and Korea and China by a pastor in the U.S. who said a simple prayer one day. He said, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. Mm. And with that a an organization was formed and then 70 years later here we are 37,000 staff in 100 countries 100,000 volunteers and we're an organization with a with a big scale but a simple focus on the most vulnerable children across the world wherever they might be wonderful
0: wonderful and now you, you you touched on it your 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 christian heritage the organization itself operates globally so you're operating in contexts that aren't necessarily Christian exclusively anyway
1: exactly we we're an organization that's very clear about our faith but we serve those of all faiths and none and we work in some contexts where where having a Christian faith you would think would be difficult places like Mauritania where there's a state religion which is which is Islam and but we're welcomed there. We work alongside them. We respect their faith, but we're very clear about ours. And sometimes, in some of the contexts, having a faith means that you can then relate with people of other faiths better. An example I give: I was in the Democratic Republic of Congo when I was traveling early this year in February. It feels like years ago now, mm. uh, with all the travel restrictions. Before the world changed. Before the world changed, exactly. And and I was in Eastern DRC in North Kivu, quite a rough area, and they've had conflict for a long time there. They had Ebola. They've also been hit quite hard by COVID-19. And I was there with a group of pastors, and we were talking about how they were helping to prepare their communities in for Ebola, to try to get the communities to understand what was needed to to eradicate Ebola and also how they were starting to have that conversation if COVID-19 was to become any more significant than it was and there we invited the the imams the leaders of the mosques in the same region and they came and joined us and we together worked with the local communities to try and build solid information and to speak against disinformation about how diseases spread and it was just wonderful to work with people of other faiths but whilst being very very clear what our faith is and I think faith in development is a real it's a real advantage it's a real benefit because we can speak with people of other faiths with a common understanding of what it means to have our faith drive what we do so that was a huge blessing and what I. What our focus is clearly at World Vision is all about children. Mm. It's about the most vulnerable children, often in the most difficult environments, like the DRC, like Syria. We're in many of the places where many of our peers won't venture. We're in Venezuela, where it's very difficult to work. But we made a decision a number of years ago that we're going to be true to our heritage, be true to our founder's heart and really go to those places where we're needed most, but where it's often more difficult to work. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And how does your, um, how do your operations look on in the front lines? How does, um, how does World Vision International interact with its local offices or local chapters and, and does it operate mainly through, um, as a delivery organization? Does it engage with delivery partners as a grant maker? Give us a little bit of a flavor for the organization structure and how you you manage to be present in so many parts, most countries of this planet.
1: Yeah, so we operate in around a 100 countries and in most of those countries, we have a separate legal entity which is a World Vision entities, you know, such as World Vision South Africa, World Vision Singapore, World Vision Kenya, Somalia. And those all agree to work in partnership with all the other entities across the partnership. So we we, we come together under something we call a covenant of partnership, which mm-hmm. is a promise that we work together under a common aim and everyone identifies as World Vision staff. We work, we do work with delivery partners in almost every context that we work. But very often we are led by our own local staff. We don't have a model of expats by and large. So okay. we have a model of enabling communities to to develop themselves. Many of our local leaders are people who've come up from working in local communities to then become national directors, CEOs in the context with with which they work. And so that means that we have this quite unique model where it feels more like a family than it does an organisation. And often we talk about brothers and sisters, not just from a Christian point of view, but it really does feel like that level of intimacy because of the closeness of the partnership. And it also means that if we need to respond to a crisis, we're uniquely placed because we have people on the ground who are often from the area that we're asking them to serve so it means that we can respond very quickly we did to COVID-19 but it also means that we speak the local language and can help help to engage and equip local communities because it's local communities that work with us and for us from the beginning. Mm
0: -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in terms of, uh, well, one of the things with the pandemic that I know is very pronounced in much of the sort of nonprofit world is, is, um, funding. How, how has that impacted, uh, funding of, of your activities and, uh, and operations more broadly?
1: Our primary funding stream is a little unusual given our scale. Okay. And that's child sponsorship, right? And we have a model where we have a child sponsorship model, but where we aim to develop communities, so mm-hmm. it's not just about the individual child; it's the communities where that child lives, children, families, and communities. And to give an idea, we're around a three billion dollar organisation per year in okay. terms of resources, revenues, and not a small, n- not a small outfit. We're not a small outfit, no, no, and. Um, And that's been, that's a huge blessing because it does mean that we have the scale to respond to things like COVID-19 as well. But the, as I said, sponsorship is our main funding stream and that's pretty robust. And we do find that there's such a close, intimate relationship between a sponsor and the child and the community that they sponsor. Yeah. That That's pretty resilient. So even when there's, there's financial challenges as there is now, that holds out pretty well. So every organisation has been impacted by COVID-19 and there are places and parts of our funding mix which have been impacted. But by and large, we've been pretty much unscathed by what's been going on. And we will leave the end of this year. We've just ended our financial year. It's the end of September and Mm -hmm. we'll end this year strong. So again, massive blessing. So we're really really thankful to be in the position that we're in.
0: No, that's really great. How did you get into all of this, by the way? It's uh, it sounds like you're, you're doing some amazing stuff. Tell me a little bit about your background and how you ended up where you are
1: today. And um... I was from very young, I was always selling things and I used to sell candy at my junior school and i did pretty well from that and then i went on to sell used cars as a teenager to pay my way through college and so the idea of marketing was just it just felt like a good fit yeah. to what i was passionate about and then at the age of 30 i had a, a very powerful coming to faith i had I hadn't really even been to a church before the age of 30 but then i I really felt called to 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 become a uh, a Christian to to believe um, in what the Bible tells me, and then I felt uh, that uh, well, my life turned around at thirty, changed mm-hmm. completely. I was working at Sky TV at the time. I was sales and marketing director. I joined there, twenty nine years old. I was the youngest, by far, the youngest exec on their management board. And then just after that, I came to faith and really felt uh, like my life had changed because of my uh, my new Christian commitment. So, uh, but then I remained in the corporate world for another um, almost twenty years after that, and I was I was CEO of three different organisations, and then I became CEO of Clear Channel in the UK, one of the largest um, advertising companies in the UK. And um, how did incredible blessing throughout my career. Spent time with um, Google, Motorola Mobility, so have really have digital at the heart of, of my corporate experience. And that was true for Clear Channel as well. We were moving them to a digital agency. And so uh, all that happened. And then alongside that, I was asked by, by the church to consider being ordained as a as an Anglican vicar, and I Mm. thought, well, you know, (laughs) it just seemed, what, me, really? You know, you really want me to do that? And Uh um, so that's where the theology degree came in, because I did, I studied a theology degree as part of my discernment process and part of my process to be ordained as an Anglican vicar, and I was ordained then in St. Paul's Cathedral in 2017, and I now work Alongside my work at World Vision, which is my full-time job without doubts, on Sunday mornings I serve at a church in West London called Holy Trinity Brompton. I'm on staff How about that? that? There. Wonderful. Yeah, and um, and I love it. And i people say, how do you have time to do the two? Well, my job is absolutely clearly with World Vision, but I m- managed to make time to serve at, at HTB at there in West London, I absolutely love it. I, I serve under Nikki Gumbel, who's a incredible vicar there, and um, yeah, that's been a, a huge blessing. But then World Vision came in, partly because I was on the board of Christian Aid in the UK. Mm-hmm. I've been asked to join Christian Aid as, on the board as their digital board member, just someone to help them think about how Christian Aid might move from a an offline to an online model, you know, the idea yeah, sure. of people collecting money around the streets for Christian Aid Week. How do you make that a digital experience? And because of that, people recognised me as somebody who was interested in <laughs> in NGOs, and then I got a phone call to go and meet Kevin Jenkins, my predecessor at World Vision. Mm-hmm. And within an hour of meeting him, I was hooked and left the corporate world. And, um, and yeah, joined there in 2016 and every day is a blessing. It's tough, but I'm in an incredibly fortunate position where I wake up in the morning and I think about my job, my role, calling, whatever you want to call it, and I smile. And mm. that's such a blessing.
0: Was well, difficult making that transition from the corporate world, you know, Google, Motorola, Sky, into into the not-for-profit space, the development world, was it a very difficult transition for you? And, I, and I'm asking you that because I know a lot of people who listen to this show, and actually a lot of people who, occasionally I give a lecture at universities, um, a lot of the times I have people who are who are listening to my lecture are saying, look, I've been in the corporate space for a really long time, I'm really keen to get into the foundations world, I'm really keen to get into the charity space, and, um, and it's not that straightforward.
1: It's not. And you have to change some of your mindsets, really, because the clearly the financial benefits are significantly lower and you have to get your mind around that. That actually, if you made the mental decision to move, that actually isn't that hard. But things are very different in the not-for-profit world. Everything is around excellence but at minimum cost Mm -hmm. and so in the corporate world it's excellence at acceptable cost and so there's a difference in how you feel about just investing that next dollar even because every dollar that you invest in in the organization the running the administration is one dollar that you take out of a child's mouth who really really needs it so you make Mm -hmm. those decisions very carefully and I'd say that the biggest transition for me was the grace and the patience of the people who I ended up working with who were very patient with me as I said well in corporate we do this or did this and they'd smile sweetly and there were some lessons to bring over digital was one thing where we've made a big difference in a short time by just having people think about do you really need to send letters forward and backwards to sponsors Do we really need to be working with children in the field using paper records? Can we not do that digitally? So that kind of thing has been a lesson that carries across. But for that, there are 10 lessons that don't. But I'd say if you feel called, if you feel pulled towards the not-for-profit world, try it. Push the door and try it. And the Christian Aid board for me was one of the ways that I saw, actually, I really do want to get into this world. And then within literally within 15 minutes of speaking to my predecessor, Kevin Jenkins, in the first interview, I just knew that this is what I wanted to do and I would have done it for free. I just felt that passionate about hearing the change that they had in children's lives and the the lives that those children would have were we not there.
0: Tell me about some of the change that you're making in children's lives what is it that you're most excited about right now what initiative or or even on the other side like what, what's keeping you awake right now give us a little bit of a flavor for 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 one of your initiatives or programs and uh, and what's happening
1: we have a big program which is to end violence against children and our global advocacy campaign is it takes a world To end violence against children using the old idiom it takes a village to Mm. raise a child saying it takes a world to end violence against children and lockdown and COVID-19 has meant that children are at home more children away from the protective environment of school children are often not given access to adults that might protect them and so violence in all its forms against children is becomes a bigger risk and we've said we launched some reports called aftershocks reports and it's about the secondary shocks of covid and one of them talked about the increase in early childhood marriage particularly mm-hmm. young girls marrying older men now yeah. young boys do get impacted by early childhood marriage as well but it's primarily in many contexts now it's primarily younger girls marrying older men and the the story that really came back to me when we were looking at this and we were preparing a plan for this right now because children are so vulnerable is a field visit last year in southern Kenya mm-hmm. on the border with Tanzania. And I went to a school that we financially support, World Vision, and a community that we've supported, a pastoralist community down there. And as I was going to the school, a... Uh, One of the uh, girls at the school there came to me and she said, can I tell you my story? And she had broken English, but um, we had an interpreter and said, yes, of course. And so I sat there with her guardian, with an interpreter and just me. And she said, this is what happened to me. She said, I was subjected to female genital mutilation, which is one of the other things that we're really focused on Mm -hmm. eradicating right now. I was subjected to female genital mutilation. My parents then, it sounded like, allowed her to be raped, hmm. which took away her dignity. She was then sold as a child bride, and her husband was a very old man, and the parents received six cattle as payment for her, which was that's lots, that's a lot of money down, down there in those communities. The the young girl went to the her old husband who um, was very abusive and she tried to stay there because she knew how important it was to her parents mm. out of some kind of form of loyalty but in the end she felt she had to run away. She ran away back to her parents and her parents took her the same day back to her husband and apologized to the husband for her running away. And she then felt desperate and after some time she ran away again. She went to the local authorities who found it difficult to support her. She went back to her parents and her parents were about to take her back to her husband again. So she ran away and she went to the World Vision um, local office because she'd heard that they could help. And we found Local family to to care for her. We helped to go to school. We helped to get the medical support she needed because she had some medical issues as a result of the abuse. And then I met her at the school where she'd been. She was doing very well at school. She was very bright, and all that was heartbreaking. It's just it was just hmm. so good that we were there for her. So bad that it happened, but so good that we were there. As a last resort for her and all that's heartbreaking what's even more heartbreaking is Esther this girl was eight years old and so you know you know I'm still quite choked when I think about it but you, you one you just wonder how people can do this to each other but two, you just it helps you to redouble your resolve to make a difference mm. And if we weren't there, what then of Esther? And we're trying to do all we can to to stop um, FGM. We're trying to do all we can to keep kids connected to a school, even if they can't attend. I was speaking this morning to um, Antoinette, who's our national director in Senegal, and, and I said, what's changed, Antoinette? And she said, well, obviously, we've been trying to support children in in education through literacy boost and unlock literacy, two programs, one is a, a Save the Children program that we use and another one is one that we've developed ourselves. Mm-hmm. But we've been trying to help children keep literacy levels high or increase literacy levels because we know how important that is for the rest of their schooling. And she said, our model was we used to bring the children to the books and we used to have after school clubs and she said, in COVID, our model has changed. That we now bring the books to the children, mm, mm. and um, and so it's zero percent business as usual with COVID, but hundred percent mission as usual.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you, in this sobering uh, example that you provided, uh, child marriage and uh, abusive contexts um, beyond what many people listening to this show would, would, would ever conceive. And um, two guests that are, that come to mind that I've had on the show before, Howard Taylor from the Global Partnership to End Violence Against Children, and then um, Mabel Van who who founded Girls Not Brides. I recall from those conversations, it's not just about dealing with the specific problem as it manifests itself there and then, but also trying to drive forward a cultural shift and attitudinal shift in communities. And I'm curious, how do you go about that? Because while you might be able to help one individual, how do you try to shift the conversation and attitudes in a local context so that these things stop becoming a reality?
1: One of the things that we found very impactful is to ask questions. Mm -hmm. And in that community where I met Esther on the Tanzania-Kenya border, we were working there with the local community leader, tribal leader, effectively though they don't like that term. And it was a it was a lady who was a tribal leader, and we we asked her about her childhood and her experiences, and she was quite emotional when she replayed those experiences. And and we said, why why does this happen? And she said, well, it's always happened. Mm. And then we asked the question, and this was in front of their tribal council. And we asked the question, does it need to happen? And it, there was a silence there. And then it was trying to say just because something's traditional doesn't mean that it's right. And and I heard, subsequently heard, that they had, they've had very big cultural shifts through some kind, kind of, interventions that we've had there which have been trying to affect behavioural change but self-driven because particularly as people from outside coming in saying you have to change your culture that just very rarely ends well but for them to help to engage in a local community for the children who are facing it today but those who have faced it in the past and to, to create an environment where they can ask the questions you find that very often the answers that they come to the answers that you would want them to come to and so it's providing that environment that allows the conversations to happen and we have a number of different programs where we help to engage those conversations in communities where we facilitate the conversation and then basically step out mm-hmm. we facilitate and we you know be it child parliaments be it community parliaments but just to try to get them to have the conversations that really matter. And what's really interesting in those contexts, which was very powerful that day in that context, is allowing the children to speak there in their communities, because often you find that children aren't allowed to share their views and just to be very open and real and honest about the impact that cultural practices have on their lives. but by allowing them to speak, you know, these are all someone's child, someone's son or daughter. Yeah. By allowing them to speak and given an environment where people have to listen to them speaking, in cultures where that's not very often not the norm, you can see the behavior change happens in a way that's more authentic and more long-term, frankly. Mm-hmm.
0: What... Um... What does success look like to you in the next 10 years? So it sounds like you're making progress in different communities in different countries. Um, as we as we near the target year for the sustainable development goals in 2030. If we were having a coffee in 2030. And looking back, what are some of the things you'd love to um, have happened?
1: Well, it's one of the core sustainable development goals, I would love to end extreme poverty in all its forms by 2030. And That's my wish. That's also my prayer. And it seems impossible in many ways now, particularly with the backward step that we've made in lots of the economic indicators as a result of COVID-19, as a result of communities that need day work to survive and that, that day work's been taken away as a result of COVID. It makes that end of global poverty seem impossible. But I'm optimistic, I think that where there's a will there's a way and what we've learned from Covid is that where people come together and have a common goal that we can achieve lots and so that's still very definitely my wish and my prayer that we could end end extreme poverty by 2030 and it's still one of the global uh, sustainable development goals and there's still lots of people focused on it, and it seems like a big stretch, but that's what makes it even more exciting and necessary. So that would be my first. The second one I would say is, and we're linked with the Global Partnership to End Violence Against Children, and uh, I'm quite close to Howard mm-hmm. Taylor. I have huge respect for him. And yeah, ending violence against children would be a specific part of that where we'd want to see a, an end to to violence against children in all its forms and that we would want to play our part in making that happen. And two big goals. It's what we used to call at Google um um big audacious goals. Sure. Yeah, we used to add in a couple of
0: other words (laughs) words there. there.
1: But but, (laughs) um, but but this is a that's what we're called to do. And as leaders we're called to to dream big but to play our part in making those dreams come true
0: Mm. well here's to your your success and i hope your optimism pays out before we wrap up what's the key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode
1: i'd say think about how your life is having an impact on the world and it's one of those things that Kills Conversation Dead at a Dinner Party. And in fact, I work for an NGO. Kills Conversation Dead at a Dinner Party often as well, interestingly. Mm. Uh, But the thinking about how your life has an impact on the world and what do you want your legacy to be? Because most of us want our legacy to be making the world better in some way, whether it's for your family whether it's for your friends, to somehow have a positive impact on the world. And just think about how you can do that, how you can have your legacy be something that's positive. And this is not a sales pitch for child sponsorship, but I've seen how sponsoring someone across the other side of the world who really needs your thoughts, your prayers, your financial contributions, but just to know that someone there cares. And I've had a number of, I sponsor a number of children. I've had a number of those say to me that the most powerful thing that child sponsorship brings to them is to know that someone cares. But this is not a sales pitch for child sponsorship. This is a an urgent that...
0: Feel free. Um, th- 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 there's no harm in, in doing so. I mean, if you, um, you know, t- tell the audience, how can they get a hold of... Uh... How can they uh, get in touch with World Vision? How can they get involved?
1: Well, if, if you feel called to support World Vision, then go to your local World Vision website, which is World Vision. If you go to World Vision International, wvi.org, um, then that will tell you who your local office is. We're in 100 countries, so chances are we're in yours. But to look at child sponsorship, look at other ways that you can pray for us, support us, then please do. But if you feel called to support another agency, do that too. We're not in competition. There's enough to go around. I want to see children's lives changed for the better, however that's done. I believe in our model. I've seen our model work. I've seen our locally based, locally hired staff and the changes that they make in some of the most difficult parts of the world. So I am confident in our model. But if you want to support another another agency in in making a difference then please please do feel free to do that but think about the impact that you want to have on that on the world think about what you want your legacy to be and for some that might mean that you're called to work in the not-for-profit sector for some it might mean that you're called to give to the not-for-profit sector so some for some it might mean that you that you're called to to pray for or support in other ways, the not-for-profit sector, but just know that you can make a difference. And however small that difference is, it makes a difference. Mm. Someone told me a story about a child who was walking along a beach with his father in Mexico. And it's when they had El Nino and the beach was absolutely full of starfish. And all these starfish had been washed ashore by, by freak waves and so the beach was literally covered with starfish and the child turned to his dad and says dad look we've just got to do something about the starfish you know they're going to die they've all been washed onto this beach and the dad turned and said look there's so many we can't make a difference and the boy walked onto the beach picked up a starfish and threw it into the water and said I've made a difference to that one.
0: Yeah, excellent.
1: And that's, I think that that's what we're called to do. However, in whatever little way that we can, do what we can. And that not only blesses those that we support, it blesses us too, because we, we're doing what we should be doing as human beings and supporting each other and, and loving each other in practical ways. And I think that um, there's no greater gift that we can receive than giving in that way. I could
0: not agree with you more. And it's a really lovely parting thought. And Andrew, thank you ever so much for joining me and us on the Do One Better podcast today. And to our listeners, you've been listening to Andrew Morley, who is World Vision International's president and chief executive officer. Uh, please uh, subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Please tell your friends, colleagues, and family if they're not listening to the show. And as as always, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, it means a lot that you tune in week after week. And I hope that stories like Andrew's resonate with you and help you um, change the world a little bit for the better in however you deem fit. Andrew, thank you so much. Really, it's been an absolute pleasure hosting you today.
1: Thank you, Alberto. Keep doing what you do too. It's important.
0: Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.